If you have your Bibles, turn to uh, 1 Peter. We're going to be continuing our study in 1 Peter um, chapter 2. Um, I don't know if there's any more directories left, but we will print more this week. So I know some of you grabbed one on your way in, and if you're worried, like, oh no, where did they go? There will be more printed. We're just not sure how many of them to print at once, um, and so that we don't have too many left over. So uh, it's kind of like yearbook day in school, right? You can have people sign it and, you know, write you a message and all that fun stuff. So, well, this morning uh, we're coming to another difficult passage in the Bible. Uh, last week, I'm assuming most of you live streamed because it was pretty sparse in the sanctuary. We walked through a passage of scripture in response to how we are to live under the civil authority that is over us. It wasn't the easiest passage to preach, but I was grateful of the response that many of you had. I got different messages over the, uh, the days that surrounded preaching that passage, and I appreciated that you were at least uh, mindful that as God was speaking, that he's calling you to obedience in uh, specifically that area. And, and that was helpful to hear uh, that you're sensitive to the word of God and, and how God is using his word to challenge you um, as you live life. And, and so thank you for encouraging me, not just, hey, great message, but um, I, I got some messages saying thank you for that challenge because it's not an easy thing for me to do. And that's always helpful because of the word of God uh, working in your life. And so uh, today we're going to meditate on another difficult passage. Um, in fact, the, the scripture that we're going to look at this morning has caused many in the secular world to believe that God, if there is even a God, is a calloused, unsympathetic, cold-hearted God. See, the issue at hand, at least as it seems is that the scriptures, especially this passage, do not condemn slavery. In fact, it seems that the Bible actually urges it. So let me read these verses for you, and we're going to unpack some of these thoughts uh, for us. I'm in First uh, Peter chapter 2, and I'm going to be reading verses 18 through 20. Hear the word of God. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect. Not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor, if for the sake of conscience towards God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if, when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and you suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. So servants, be submissive to your masters. Some of your translations may say, slaves, be submissive to your masters. And for many, this seems egregious that the Word of God would so clearly and emphatically state things like this. Opponents of Christianity often point to this passage and the others like it. And Paul wrote, about the relationship of slaves and masters, like in Ephesians chapter 6 and other places, like in the book of Colossians. And so the word talks about these things, 
not in a prohibitive sense, but as a matter of fact, this is what we are to do in these kinds of relationships. And for those that want to attack the sufficiency of the Word of God, they say that passages like these even expose the lack of morality in the Bible. Or they'll say it's culturally and morally antiquated. That it's old-fashioned and not applicable to this life. How many of you have ever heard criticisms like that? That the Word of God certainly doesn't meet the current cultural norms that we have in society. It's like we've evolved to a greater, higher plane in the last 2,000 years. I'd say, if anything, we're going right down into the gutter. But they see these things, and they don't just scratch their head. They sharply disagree with statements that are made in the Bible, and they look at us as being a closed-minded, old-fashioned, unthoughtful people. Here's the problem. Most people, Christians and non-Christians alike, agree that slavery, one person owning another person, is wrong. Christian, non-Christian. And yet it appears Scripture condones slavery. After all, it regulates it. It gives instructions for the buying and selling of slaves. And it also gives instructions on the treatment of slaves. And today, the passage we are studying tells us how slaves are to obey their masters, even evil ones, to suffer unjustly. And if you catch that, it calls for slaves to submit. If you suffer unjustly, submit. That's the message that Peter gives. But the Bible doesn't call for the abolition of this institution. It does not call for slaves to revolt or to fight for their freedom. In one New Testament letter, the Apostle Paul actually sends a slave back who's named Onesimus to his slave owner, Philemon. Paul wasn't a slave runner. He was a slave returner. And for us in America, it's impossible to read these verses without the history of our country's horrific commitment to slavery. Christians in the pre-Civil War South not only owned slaves, but justified it from the Bible. Jefferson Davis, who was the former president of the Confederate States of America, said this, Slavery was established by the decree of Almighty God. It is sanctioned in the Bible in both Testaments, from Genesis to Revelation. It has existed in all ages, has been found among the people of the highest civilization and in nations of the highest proficiency in the arts. A 19th century South Carolina pastor who there's a university named after him. His name is Richard Furman. So Furman University said this concerning slavery. The right of holding slaves is clearly established in the Holy Scriptures, both by precept and and example. It's true. 
The church never addressed the institution of slavery in society, for it was outside of its province. Society in that day did not claim to be representative and certainly not representative of Christians. The scriptures, though, did address the situation in the church where no social distinctions were to be made between free man and slave. In Galatians, Paul says there is no distinction before Christ, whether you are slave or free, Jew or Greek, barbarian or Scythian. We are all free in the eyes of Christ. The previous verses that we looked at last week, in fact, speak to the attitude of submission to authority in those who are in governing places. And so Peter's building on that. And it's very likely that the New Testament reader or writers and God himself who is speaking through these men did not speak against slavery because any kind of revolt of believing slaves rising up against their masters would be crushed with terrible cruelty. Violence begets violence. And some say, well, why is God silent on the issue? And he's not completely silent. But what he is saying is that if you are a believer and you are in this place, this is how he wants us to live. But we do see in the scriptures that God did forbid his people to use slavery as a means of permanent exploitation. Permanent exploitation. To feed off of the lives of others and their children one generation after another. In the Old Testament, in fact, there, there were whole um, systems in place. Like the, the years of Jubilee where there were to be rest and the return of people back to their homes. And that they were not to be indentured to someone else for the, for the whole of their life. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10, we read that one of the sins listed of those who are disobedient to the law are called kidnappers. So if you read 1 Timothy 1.10, it's one of the sins listed in that list of people that we are to uh, avoid in their conduct and behavior. And kidnappers is mentioned, and the word itself in the original Greek language means slave dealer. It speaks of one who would take captive of a person to sell them into slavery. See, we forget in the discussion of slavery in the scriptures that when we hear the word itself, slavery, that there was a different understanding that what, than what we think of in our American culture. See, when, when I he, tell you or say to you the word slavery, where does your mind go? It goes to 20th century, 18th or 19th century America, where on the plantations of the South, there were African-Americans that were bought, brought over and bought to be indentured servants on those plantations. But the text of first Peter gives us clues that the slave mentioned here had a different experience than that experience in 19th century America. In the ancient Roman world, there were three classes of people. 
This is the world that Peter wrote. The first class was the Roman citizen who had full rights and protection under the law. There was the freed men who had restricted protections but still enjoyed a great deal of autonomy. And then there was the servant class, which was the slave class. And most often people were made slaves not by racial distinction, but they were made slaves because as the Romans came in and conquered an area, they just brought all those people back and made them slaves. The servants in verse 18 that Peter mentions, and that's the first word that is uh, written there, suggests it's a person who was a household servant. That's what the word servant here means, household servant. This is one who is a household manager. They were trained people. They held various professions. They were doctors, nurses, teachers, musicians, and skilled artisans. In the Roman world that Peter lived in, these people were provided for. They had skill. They were educated. They were allowed to pursue different things that would benefit the houses that they served under. Roman law allowed for a slave to buy their freedom back at the age of 30. So if they worked and saved, they could purchase their freedom from their master. And while their service was involuntary, as they often became servants by being a prisoner of war, they were provided for. First century slavery and 20th century American slavery are not comparable institutions. They were far different. Now, I'm not saying it was great and wonderful and everyone was excited and enjoyed it, but it was far different than what we know. It was more of an employee-employer relationship. One who had a title and responsibility for a master who was over them, and that master provided for them. Now, the closest example would be a person who receives a college education from a job that requires a certain amount of employment afterwards. And that happens today where uh, people will uh, embark on an internship in a career path and, and their job will say, hey, if you're committed for three or five or longer years, we will pay for your education and schooling. And so you're committing yourself to that work for a period of time for the service that they are providing. And so in this way, we read the New Testament passages like First Peter through a different lens. The heart of this passage, as we saw last week, and as we're going to see over the the next several weeks, is that we are to follow the example of Jesus Christ, who is the prime example of humility and submission in the face of adversity. In fact, we talked about this last week, that sandwich uh, technique that the writers would often use in the Bible, where there was an example provided by the, the truth followed by another example. Well, we're just in a series of examples right now. Next week, we're going to talk about the, the truth that is found in of who Jesus is and the, the example that we are to follow as we become more like him. So look at verse 18 again. Servants. Be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. Be submissive to 
to your masters with all respect. If there were any servants that would feel the tension of a master who was being unreasonable, it would be the kind of servant that lived in the house of their master, right? Aren't we different people in our homes than when we're outside of our homes? If you're not sure about that, ask your spouse or ask your kids, right? So if there's going to be any example of this tension that exists of an unreasonable master, it's going to be felt by those who lived in their home. Peter says, be submissive. Here's that word again. It was the same word that was used in 1 Peter 2, verse 13. Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Submit. That Greek word, hupotasso, to willingly place yourself under the authority of someone. Be submissive. The word master is the Greek word despotes, which is where we get the English word despot. And it's often used in a negative light as someone who is lording themselves over another for their own gain. Peter says to these servants, submit to them with all respect. Now, the word submit is in the imperative in the Greek language. And what that means is it's not a question. It's not like, well, if you you feel like it, or if things are working out on your behalf, an imperative statement is a command. God is saying, submit. There's no question. It's not a question to submit with all respect. And that phrase, all respect, can be translated fear. It's the Greek word phobos, which is where we get the English word phobia. It carries the idea of having a healthy apprehension of the displeasure of their master. Peter warns of the careless disregard or disdain of the authority of the master by the servant. So let's put some of this together. Not only those who are good and gentle. Not only the master's. That go above and beyond. Not only those that give you the Christmas bonus and the soft comfy sheets to sleep in and all the wonderful extras that come from their masters. Peter says not only those who are good in general, but also to those who are unreasonable. And this is this seems to be at least where there is trouble for those who criticize the message of the scriptures and the God who wrote them. It doesn't seem what, right, for the servant. It doesn't seem what? Fair. Boy, we love using that. We throw that word around all the time. We throw around fairness like we know what it is and what isn't fair. I've said before, I thank God that he isn't fair towards me. See, if God was fair towards me, I would be dead in my sins. I would have no hope. There is no rescue. There is no grace and there is no mercy. And there certainly is no Jesus. We are called to submit 
to those who are not only good and gentle, but also those who are unreasonable. Verse 19, for this finds favor if for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. So if that wasn't clear enough, Peter builds on the unreasonableness by saying there is favor found by bearing up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. In essence, this is God's will. That's what Peter's saying. This is the will of God that you suffer when treated unfairly. You suffer by bearing up under sorrows. To bear up under sorrows means to suffer with, without retaliation. To suffer by bearing up under sorrows means to suffer without retaliation. That's a hard message for some people to hear. See, God wants us to have a conscience and use that conscience and be committed to do what is right. And that should move us to do what is right. And to do what is right here is to patiently endure, to suffer under hardship. To bear up under sorrows when suffering unjustly is the heart of a disciple. It finds its example in Jesus Christ, which we will see next week. Favor, Peter says, is only found when the mind rests towards God, who is the benevolent judge who always does what is right. Now, what's this word favor? It's the word charis that we translate grace. There is grace found for those who suffer unjustly at the hands of those who are unreasonable, especially at the hands of those who are our masters. The world needs to see Christians who are treated unjustly, nevertheless act honorably and good. That's what Peter is saying. Remember the testimony. Remember the example. Remember the illustration of grace that we are to be in a hurting world. That when we suffer, even suffer unjustly, and we endure, there is grace given, and it's a testimony to the world of what God does in the heart of His children. And so Peter says in verse 20, For what credit is there if when you sin and, harshly, and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? So you see that? You see the, the, the negative side of that? For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. The word credit means fame or glory. What fame or glory is it if you're doing the wrong thing and you suffer for that? There is no good in that. There is no glory in that. There is no credit. There's no applause. There's nothing that comes with it, but you get what you deserve. But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it. This finds favor with God. 
Now, this verse is really a retelling of verse 19, but the emphasis is on doing what is right. It's always the best thing to do. Doing the right thing is always the best thing to do. That seems obvious, right? But you know what I found in life? Doing the right thing is often the hardest thing to do. It's not the easiest thing to do. It's the, it not even the most satisfying thing to do in that moment. But doing the right thing is often the hard thing, but it's the best thing to do. Peter says that the believer can rest confidently because God has approved their conduct, even if other people, like a, like a master who is unreasonable, even if they don't approve, God approves. And notice what the result is. Endurance. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it. Endurance is the ability to stay or reside. Right? The, the waves are crashing, the wind is blowing, everything is falling apart around you, and endurance means you can stand firm in the midst of that chaos. That's what endurance is. Endurance in a fallen world, in a crooked world, is a supremely Christian virtue. We lack endurance in life. But the gift of God is that he teaches us how it is developed. Right? It's something that we all need. We need to endure. We do. This world's going to beat you up and put you through the ringer. It's going to stretch you and it's going to cause every ounce of your, your being to want to just be done with everything around you. It's going to squeeze you with great pressure. And God says... That if you trust him, he's going to give you the grace that you need to make your way through it. How do we know this? Well, if you're in first Peter, go to the book of James, one book back. James chapter one, very familiar verses, very helpful verses, though, uh, James chapter one, verse two and following. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces what? Endurance. Consider it all joy. We're not talking about happiness. There's a big difference between happiness and joy. We're talking about joy, though. Like the, the, the settled confidence in the goodness of God, joy. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Not consider it all joy when you find a way out of those trials or when the trials go a different direction and you go this way. Or that when you cry out for help, there's joy when God comes in and rescues you out of the trials. There's no joy in that, James says. But James says that there is joy 
in the various trials of life, knowing that the testing of your faith in these various trials produces endurance. And then he says in verse four, and let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Trials in life that seem to crush us can be used if we trust God by helping us to stand firm in the midst of the things that we think are going to crush us. Trials activate our faith and faith creates endurance. And Peter says here to these believers, if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this is what finds favor with God. So what does this all mean for us? Right? I I gave you an exposition on the plight of slavery that our country has gone through. And and the world does. America is not unique in this pursuit of sinfulness to control other people for the gain of others. But that's, you know, our context and that's what we think through. That's our framework. So we we walk through that. And then we talk through uh, a a portion of the scriptures that talk about servants and masters. And you might think, so what? Because like how many of us are in that kind of relationship? But remember what I said when we began this discussion in First Peter 2 about this word servant. This word servant means household servant and it's best described through the lens of an employer-employee relationship. So let me ask you this. How many of you are employees of someone? How many of you retired from being an employee of someone? Okay, do you see kind of now where some of this fits? Like this isn't foreign discussions of things that will never apply to us. This hits all of us. How many of you remember the days of going to work and someone was an authority over you? And for those that are employees, how many of you have ever had, not just in your estimation, but in reality, a bad boss? A boss that is unreasonable, selfish, difficult, unrealistic. Hit a little closer to home. Okay, you get some of this. Now, this seems to be the experience of many of us. I had a boss like that in my first job. And it wasn't because this boss was difficult to me vocationally. It was like, it's not like he made my work life impossible. But as I looked at him, as I looked at the character of who he was, he was difficult 
because he was unreasonable in his mood and behavior. He was abusive in his speech towards fellow employees, and it was difficult for me, even as a teenager, to respect him. So through this lens, how many can relate and are challenged by Peter's words now? To suffer unjustly and to endure it with patience. For this finds favor with God. To submit to those who are in authority over us, even those who are unreasonable, and find God's favor by patiently enduring for doing what is right. See, what we need to remember is that whatever we do in life, God is inviting us to trust Him. Whatever you are doing in life, God is inviting you to trust Him. Rather than having compartments in your life where you have your church compartment and your Sunday compartment, and then you have your Monday through Friday compartment, and then you have your weekend compartment, and then you have your evening compartment and your day compartment. And we go through and we silo ourselves and think, well, you know, this is where I'll be here and here and here. What God is saying is in all of it, trust me. Believe me. Walk with me. Because God has a lot to say about all of those areas. And when you trust God, you will find what? To endure grace. His favor. To patiently endure. But we have to keep our life fixed on Him. Now, Not only do I think that this applies to the employer-employee relationship, but we have some of these in the room. I also think it applies to our students. Some of you students out there think, yeah, school is work. But, you know, you're doing something in school, right? And this is where the Word of God applies in these situations. How many of you students out there feel like you've ever had an unreasonable teacher? We can talk later. You know, we go through school and think that there are teachers out there that their main mission in life is to make our school life miserable. But rather than complain, entrust yourself to the will of God. Entrust yourself to the goodness of God that says, endure it and you will find grace in the midst of it. And for all of us, Trust God and be faithful to Him in what you do. Trust Him and be faithful to Him for what you do. Cutting corners, not being accountable, laziness, apathy, all bring just suffering. You know, we go through it and like, well, they don't care. Why should I care? Or they don't do anything. Why do I have to do everything? Or they're not a person I would respect. Why should I keep doing the things well that they want me to do? Because they're not going to give me all the applause that I deserve. Church, when you start thinking about it this way, whose applause matters, if anything, in the world that you live in? His. And where is God? Well, he's not just here in this room on a Sunday morning. He's everywhere you go. You live in his world. And so whatever you do, 
Right? That's what the bulletin, the verse in the bulletin says. Right? 1 Corinthians 10.31 Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do what? Do it all unto the glory of God. Complaining, grumbling, murmuring, all include a degree of harshness when confronted. We talked about this last week in reference to our response to government. And I said to you last week that, you know, some of the biggest help that might be for you when you are overwhelmed by the, the craziness that exists in governing authorities is stay off of social media. I think the same exists when you consider the craziness of your work world. Stay off of social media. Like we all feel like we have a right to just vent whatever about whatever. That's not doing anything constructive for you. What does God want you to do? He wants you to dig in and trust him and endure it. He wants you to believe in him so that you don't suffer for doing the wrong thing. Right? That's what Peter says. Don't suffer for sin. If you suffer, though, for doing the right thing, God will give you the grace that is needed. So Peter's challenge is to do our jobs, whatever they are. And as we work, we entrust ourselves to God who will always do the right thing for his children. Whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. Let's pray.